0: Welcome to Three Things with Rick Elias, featuring fascinating conversations with some of the world's most insightful people and three inspiring life lessons at the end of every episode. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience here at Red Ventures, where Rick and our guest Simon Sinek discussed how optimism is different from general positivity and how an infinite mindset can unlock opportunity and happiness even when chaos strikes. You may know Simon as the best selling author of books like Start With Why and The Infinite Game, or you might know his world famous TED Talk about how great leaders inspire action. Or maybe you've heard our previous episode with Simon on three things called The Purpose of Business, which deeper into how Simon's philosophies can be applied to leadership team building and more if you enjoyed today's episode be sure to check that one out this is three things with Simon Sinek
1: Simon 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 what a lovely welcome welcome to Charlotte welcome to Red Ventures so Simon you are in the business of optimism yes tough time to be in your
2: business um I don't think so you know uh I think people confuse optimism with blind positivity. Uh, Blind positivity, everything's good, everything's fine, everything's good, is unhealthy. And for leaders who operate with blind positivity, positivity, thinking that if I project positivity, it'll make people feel good, it actually backfires. Mm. Because in dark times or confusing times, um, when somebody's excessively positive, we think there's something wrong with us. Like if they're happy and I'm unhappy, if they seem certain and I'm uncertain, then something must be wrong with me. Um, Optimism is not that. Optimism is not naive. Um, Optimism uh, accepts reality. Um, Optimism is is the undying belief that the future is bright. Mm. So we can be in a dark tunnel and we can say, look, I I know there's a light at the end of this tunnel. I don't know how long it's gonna take us to get there. Um, I don't know how far away it is. And this is hard and and I'm struggling, but I I know that if we work together, we will get through this and come out of this stronger than we went in. That's optimism.
1: When was the last time the tunnel felt this dark for society? Um, in my lifetime, mm-hmm. zero. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is, I mean,
2: as if we didn't have the stress, the stress uh, and the trauma of COVID was enough. And I think we're still recuperating. I, don't, I think just because we're sort of, it's sort of feeling like old times a little bit. I, I, there's a lot of mental health challenges that we're still struggling with. And now having to deal with so much chaos in our, in our world and in our country, I think it's just harder for us to cope. Mm-hmm. I don't think we sort of recognize that we're not quite mentally out of
1: COVID yet. How do you cope with all of this in a way that you maintain the view that the future will be brighter than the present? Well, I think this is why vision
2: is important. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to be cl- clear what vision is. You know, vision, the reason we call it vision is because we can imagine it. We can see it in our mind's eye. We can paint a picture. And great leaders speak in visionary terms. They speak in images. Mm. Um, the way um, John F. Kennedy, for example, described how we would send a man to the moon and bring him home safely. Mm. You, know, you, start, can, you can imagine that little rocket ship. You know, when Martin Luther King said, I have a dream, that one day little black children will play on the playground with little white children. You can, you can see that. You can mm. imagine that. Mm. And, and that's what gives us, I think that's what helps keep optimism in dark times, which is we stay crystal clear and we stay focused on that light. And mm. it is light. Um, um, the reality of great vision is we'll never get there. And all the, all the challenges that we continue to struggle with, we will never get there. They are ideals, but we will die trying, which is the point. And the milestones that we pass make us feel that the effort that we're investing um, is worth it. And so we stay focused on that vision. And that doesn't mean that it's not difficult sometimes, um, mm. but, but vision really matters. And, and the other thing which I think is m- always forgotten is, is relationships. We forget that we are social animals and we need human interaction. We need uh, love mm. um, and when we're asked to do very, very difficult things, like to, to muster courage, I do not for one second believe courage is a deep internal fortitude. Dig down deep and find the courage, I just don't believe it. Right. And I've had the opportunity to meet people who have risked their lives to save the lives of others, believing that they would die. And they've got families, and they've got kids, and they didn't have to do it, no one would have faulted them if they didn't do it, but they did it anyway, and miraculously they lived. And, and when I've asked them, why did you do it? They almost always say the same thing. They say, um, because someone else would have done it for me. Hmm. And it's the undying belief that someone has my back that gives me courage. You know, a world famous trapeze artist would never try a brand new death-defying act for the first time without a net. It's the net that gave them the courage. You know, you wouldn't jump out of a perfectly good airplane without a parachute on your back. It's the parachute that gave you courage. It's the external thing. And the same is true um, in work and in life which is when we have big risks to take, when we want to do the thing that is ethically correct but might cost us money in the short term, you know, it might not be the expedient thing but it's the right thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those decisions, decisions, especially when there's tremendous amounts of external pressure to do the wrong thing, which is kind of what our world is, um, the courage to do right comes from the quality of the relationships and all we need is at least one person, personally or professionally, who says, I believe in you, you have to do this, I've got your back. And if the whole thing goes south, I'll still be here with you. Mm. And, and that, that fuels
1: courage. And uh, that fuels optimism too. I love it. But can you share that vision in your head that you know will not be achieved? But, but what, what is that vision? What drives your... me? Yeah.
2: I imagine a world, there, there's that imagination. I imagine a world in which the vast majority of people wake up every single morning inspired, feel safe wherever they are, and end the day fulfilled by the work that they do.
1: Hmm.
2: Um, I, I don't know how to get there. Um, I'm agnostic as to the route that I take. And, and I think that's an important component. If you notice, my vision has nothing to do with what I do in it. And too many visions attempt to dictate the path, mm-hmm. right? And so the analogy that I'll give is, it's like waking up in the morning and you come outside your house and you see your neighbor packing up their car. And you're like, hey, where, where are you going? They go vacation. Like, oh, cool. Where, where are you going? They say vacation. No, no. Like, I, I got that. <laughs> where are you going? He says vacation. Fine. Well, how are you gonna get there? Well, I'm gonna take 95. My goal is to drive 200 miles a day. And I think that's how most of us run businesses. Yeah. Which is why does your company exist? Growth. Okay, that's abstract. Like, so what are you growing for? No, I told you, growth. Like look, look, that's not why you exist. Yeah, growth. Well, how are you going to get there? And they tell you their business strategy and what their goal is and what revenue goal they want to hit every single year. And my question is, is what happens if there's a roadblock that you didn't expect that destroys your numbers? And if you have no vision, you don't know how to go around it. Panic ensues. You know, and all you become obsessed is hitting that 200 miles. When you have vision, you sort of say, okay, well, we'll take that path. To everybody else, it looks like we're going sideways. Yeah. But we're not. We're just going around. And yes, the road is slower, and everybody thinks we're we're failing because we're going slowly when we're just going around, yeah. you know. Um, and, and I think when you have vision and are agnostic as to the, um, uh, the route, it makes you much more open to new technology or cultural differences and surprises because you'll find things that are actually more efficient and better instead of trying to cling on to that old business model or that plan. Right, right. It, makes, you know, it makes that always bumpy road much more um, uh, it's heading in the right direction because I'd rather go slow in the right direction than running off fast in the wrong direction.
1: What I was hoping that we would get to today, you and I talk frequently and we always have great conversations, always run out of time and never off topics. I am a huge fan of your podcast. Um, Thank you. Your last guests were Arthur Brooks uh, and we were just chatting about how brilliant he is and how interesting he is. Yeah. Uh, But he talked uh, in in this last podcast about a bunch of really interesting things. One of the many that stay with me is this notion of our ability to remodel our lives, Mm -hmm. right? And to use times like this, perhaps, to Mm -hmm. think about remodeling our lives. Um, I know that has been the case with you. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell me more about your view on that and your constant thinking of evolving who you are. So...
2: um one of the things that I've learned, and you learned it too, which is the value that comes from an infinite mindset, you know, I, I, there's no winning in most of the games we play and there's definitely no such thing as winning in business, but I love it when, you know, CEOs come up to me and go, no, no, our, our company really is number one. And I always say, for now, right. like I add for now to everything. Right. But it works the other way too, it's like, oh my God, this is dark times,
1: for, for now. now,
2: you know? And there's a Chinese story. It's told many ways. I'll tell the way I know it. That really captures what an infinite mindset is. A young man is born with remarkable gifts for horse riding. And everyone in the village says, you're so lucky. And the monk says, we'll see. And he falls off his horse and breaks his leg and his career is destroyed. And everyone in the village says, oh my God, you're so unlucky. And the monk says, we'll see. And then war breaks out and all the all the men are sent to battle, and he can't go because of his busted leg. And everybody in the village says, you're so lucky. And the monk says, we'll see. And that's life. Yeah. Like we don't really know. Yeah. And some of the hardest things that we've gone through ended up being the greatest lessons. We don't want to redo it again, but we're grateful that they happened. Yeah. I mean, you, you're living proof of something that you don't want to do again, but you're grateful that it happened. Um, and I think when you learn to adopt an infinite mindset, um, you learn to, you can celebrate your wins, but you don't define yourself by them. And you can mourn your losses, but you don't define yourself by them. Mm. And, um, and it also makes you very comfortable with surprise. Um, Infinite-minded players are very, uh, uh, they appreciate uncertainty, mm. and they find opportunity in surprise. Where finite-minded players fear surprise, and they, that's why they like short time frames and excessive amounts of control, because, because they fear anything deviating. Mm. And the problem is, opportunity is always off the plan almost always. Right, right. Um, and so that's one thing that's helped me. But the other thing is there's, a, there's an appreciation for chaos. You know, there's always a little bit of chaos. Some, you know, it sort of goes like this. Mm-hmm. And COVID is a great example of a tremendous amount of chaos.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, I think chaos is a magical time to make changes that you've been thinking about and talking about for so long, but you couldn't because it was disruptive or you would disrupt somebody else or you're too afraid. And when chaos strikes, eh, everything's, in a, everything's a mess. Now's right, the time to right. do it.
1: What an interesting vision that whatever time period, five, ten years from now, we each individually can look in the mirror and say, you know what? I don't want to go through something like COVID again, mm-hmm. but I am so grateful it happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, mean, I think one of the big mistakes we make in life is
2: we label things good or bad. Mm-hmm. And, and we do this with ourselves. We talk about what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses? You know, we, we sort of we all go through this. And the reality is there's no such thing as any of those things. Everything is balanced. You know, right. nature abhors a vacuum, and every, and seeks equilibrium at all times. Everything is balanced. There's a cost for everything that we get, right. for every for everything we get in life, business or professional. There's a cost, right? Maybe you're super successful, made a ton of money. How's the relationship with your family? Do you spend enough time? That's a cost. And sometimes the cost is too high, and sometimes it's worth it. But at the same time, everything bad that happens comes with a lesson. Hmm. And um, and so I don't think in terms of what are my strengths and what are my weaknesses. It's it's all relative. Right. So I'll give you a funny example. So I'm chronically disorganized, which I know you can't understand, but I am chronically, I mean, because you're not disorganized. Like what I'm about to say will scare you. Um, I'm chronically disorganized. And I, years ago, when I first started my business, I went to this networking event. I was in my late 20s. I, I went to this networking event and some guy was like, you're amazing, Simon. I think you're incredible. I think your idea is incredible. We have to work with you. Here's my business card. Let's do this. And I went, amazing, great. Took his business card and I lost it by the time I left the event, you know? Because if I was organized, I'd be texting him from the taxi or emailing him the next day, which would be a great idea if I knew how to get in touch with him, but I didn't. And two weeks went by, and uh, I found his business card at the bottom of my briefcase, like covered in dust bunnies, probably. And so I emailed him. I'm like, hey, I remember we met a couple weeks ago. I'd love to get in touch with you. And he's, he wanted to work with me more because he thought I was busy. So, um, so the question is: Is being disorganized a liability or, or an asset? And the question, the answer is: It depends.
1: It depends.
2: You know, when it's when yes, I, when the my, is yes. Yeah, when my <laughs> team wants me to get something done on time and I'm late, it's a liability. You know, in a, in a, in a case like that, where someone mis- misunderstands my 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 organizing skills for 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 how popular I am, it's very great. <laughs> Um, and I think we have to remember that, that all of our strengths have liabilities and ordin- all of our weaknesses have advantages. And right. knowing how those things work, what that does is it, it's a new way of viewing yourself, which is you don't try and look at your strengths and weaknesses, but you look at how to create an environment in which my strengths are more likely to be present right. and my weaknesses are more likely to be mitigated. So the way I've managed my career is to push myself in directions where the weaknesses that I am aware of won't, won't show up much and the mm-hmm. strengths that I'm aware of are more likely to, 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 to thrive. I've
1: heard you say that you have written more books than you read. That is true. I've been saying that since I wrote my first book. <laughs> <laughs> is that an example of uh, this path of uh, picking a career? Where... Yeah,
2: it's something that I had a lot of shame about for many years because people assume that I'm extremely well-read. And they would always ask me questions in interviews like, what's on your bookshelf? I'm like, oh, so many books I haven't read. <laughs> um but I, I am not a good reader. Um, I have chronic ADHD, which my whole life has not helped. I'm very distractible, um, and um, I struggle to read. I love the idea of books. I buy them all the time, and I've <laughs> and I've started a lot of books, um, but I, I I don't I don't read. And so I've I and I've known this since I was a kid. So I've had to find new ways to learn. And the way I learn is this: yeah. I learn orally. You know, I, right. I learn by listening. And, and I had to develop that skill because I can't learn whatever I needed to learn from a book, which is, so it's, it's benefited me in life. But no, the reality is I'm, a t- I'm not a good reader.
1: And uh, I've also heard you say that you, are, you don't have ADHD. You're hyper-focused. Yeah, yeah. I,
2: I, I, I lament that we label things with the pejorative. You know, we're going to tell a child that they have a deficit and a disorder. Like, how stupid is that? And like I said before, everything... Everything comes at a cost, every advantage has a cost, and, and every weakness has an, has an opportunity. And that is true, I am sometimes distractible because of this thing that is medically called ADHD, um, but I also know that when I'm focused, I can get more done in an hour than most people can get done in a day, and I get more done in a day than most people can done, get done in a week. And so I choose to tell people that I have hyper-focus that sometimes comes with distractibility, <laughs> rather than saying I'm distractible then sometimes
1: comes with hyperfocus.
2: I would rather tell a child that they have a superpower, which they do, yeah. um, but that
1: superpower, like everything, has, has costs. It's just a reminder how much words really matter. W- words, yes, words do matter. We're,
2: we are social animals that use communication. We use words to not only understand the world, but understand ourselves. Right. And the simple reframing of things can profoundly change our view of ourselves and of the world. Um, I'll give you another example of, of how ma- of words matter you know, um, it is much more powerful to be, to be for something than against something, right? Mm. It's easier to be against something.
1: That's our politics today. Right.
2: It's very easy to be against something, and it's expedient. And you can rally people in the short term, but what inspires is being for something. As human beings, we, we find great joy in building. Pulling things down and destroying might make us feel good, make us feel self-righteous in the short term, but then what happens? Then, then what have you pull it down? Then, then what? There's nothing. Mm. There's no next. Mm. Um, and I'll give you so many examples of, of how we think about our world. So... For example, we talk about um, reducing unemployment. Why don't we ever talk about raising employment? We literally report a number of 4% unemployment. Why don't we report 96 employment? 96% employment? Let's get that, you know, in the Great Depression, it was 75%, let's get that number up to 80. Like, I'd rather build things than right. pull them down. So it's amazing how, how much stuff you, you listen to. The language produces animosity, anger, uh, short-termism um, and, and unfulfilling desires to
1: pull things down rather than lift them up. On the other side of the pandemic, from an organizational uh, standpoint, not mm-hmm. individual, what, what looks different and what comes back to what it was? So um, there's only one thing that I'm comfortable saying with certainty,
2: because it is such, it, it's such flux right now. And um, and everybody's trying to make predictions, and the, re- the, the realities we don't know. The one thing I'm comfortable saying with any kind of certainty is that whatever world we end up in will be much more flexible, mm. you know, where um, it used to be, you know, tech, you know, email your boss, is it okay if I work from home on Friday because my kids are home, blah, blah, blah. Or, and, go, to and, or go to the doctor. Or go to the doctor, whatever. Like silly thing. You know, and now it'll just be um, an, an email in the morning that says, hey, I'm just working from home today, and everybody's fine with it. Like, mm. no, no permission or, or advance notice required. So I think... Very comfortable saying that I think we're heading to a world in which the flexibility um, dominates, which is great. Um, but beyond that, um, I think the struggle that a lot of companies are having, do I force my people to come back? Do I let them work remotely? You know, how do I do it? You know, what percentages? How many days a week? I don't think anybody knows. And I think a lot of the demands that um, 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 people are making that I demand to work remotely um, will backfire, quite frankly, um, because we already know from COVID that the mental health and depression is super high, and by demanding the, 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 this false god that you know, you know, working from home is, is the solution to everything, will I think only exaggerate the loneliness, and
1: it's gonna it's gonna swing back the other way. Mm. You know, I know that you and I believe that trust requires vulnerability. Yeah, it's the foundational currency of of any trusting relationship. So yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna. Share with you live in front of all our, of our team something that I, I struggle with right now as I think about this question, which I, I agree wholeheartedly on flexibility being the, the ultimate outcome, and that this is all too much in flux and no one really knows how yeah. it plays out and what's the right thing, not just for the business, but really for the individuals as yeah. part of the business. So I, I happen to believe that if you're lucky, the first 10 years of your life, you are taught in your household your parents or whoever are your guardians you know, teach you. And if you're lucky, your next 10 years, you're taught in school. And if you have good teachers and good education, that's how you form a lot of your thinking and, and very important time. And then the next 10 years, which to me is the, first, the, the end of your apprenticeship mm-hmm. you know, kind of journey of life, mm-hmm. you're taught in whatever organizations or organization you belong to. Mm-hmm. In that 10-year period of time, is a lot about deciding what you don't want to do. You build your social circles. It's the amount, the amount of people that you end up you know, becoming life, lifelong friends mm-hmm. and all that. I fear that that group of people that are in their 20s mm-hmm. are missing out in something that is so foundational and important mm-hmm. uh, in the success of this country, which is that apprenticeship decade for young talent mm-hmm. in a place that they're on their own.
2: I think you're 100% right, and, and, uh, um, and you know, when you're at school, but you hate your class, or you're having a hard time at school, you don't just drop out of school, you, know, you, you kind of figure it out, and you can take leaves of absence, but you'll come back, and, yeah. but you sort of stick with it for, until you get your degree, and they say, okay, you've matriculated, now you can go, you know? And I think at work, um, our tolerance for discomfort is getting lower that if I'm a little bit uncomfortable because I don't understand something or you know, I'm having a bad week or I'm having a bad month, you know, I'll just quit. Mm. You know? and, and I think that this idea that my work has to fill all of, those, that all of those boxes, which is an unreasonable expectation, just like finding a partner who is like my emotional equal, my intellectual equal, my perfect sexual partner, it's like who shares all the same interests, we want to go all the same places, we have all the same tastes, it's like good, good luck with that one you know? And so we are all living with this perpetual grass is always greener. And we focus or fixate on what's wrong with wherever I am or the person I'm with and know that there's something better out there. And so we bounce and bounce and bounce and bounce. And there's something to be said for a student's mindset. And to show up and be humbled by the fact that I'm not the expert, I definitely think I have a lot of ideas. When I'm young in my job, I definitely think management doesn't get it. You know, that that every young generation believes. I definitely thought that, you definitely thought that. Of course. Um, But, and also a recognition that I am a student here. And I think to to show up as a student, and I always tell people, which is, if you find the perfect job, you'll learn nothing. But if you find jobs that have issues, or a boss that's imperfect, or something that didn't go quite well, do you have any idea how much you're learning? Mm -hmm. And I can tell you from my own career, the best lessons came from the bad bosses, the hard experiences, the struggles, and sometimes they were great bosses, but going through huge stress mm. together. Mm. You know, It's usually stress and struggle mm. that the, the best lessons happen, and that's called school. And the only, the only thing you have to make sure you have is an environment in which you feel psychologically safe to raise your hand and say, I made a mistake, um, I don't feel qualified to do the job you've given me, I need more training, um, I, don't under, uh, I don't understand, I need help. Mm. Um, uh, without any fear of humiliation or retribution. If you don't have that, then yes, leave. Because mm-hmm. you can never be an effective student if you can never say, I need help or I don't understand.
1: I always think, just an add-on point to that is, I think if, if you're a young person, look for an environment where you're getting opportunities ahead of your time. And, right? and yeah, uh, exactly. That usually yeah. comes. Um, yeah, and yes, yes, and understand that
2: everybody has something to contribute. Right. Young has something to contribute, and, and, and older has something to contribute. to. Right. What led you to write Start With Why? So all of my books are semi-autobiographical. Um, uh, none of them were intended to be books. Um, start with why I was born out of uh, pain. It mm-hmm. was, I had a, a small business, I ran a marketing consultancy, we had amazing clients, we did great work, and superficially my life was really good. Except I didn't feel it. Um, I got to a point where I, um, I didn't feel as, as successful or as in control as, as I wanted to. and so. Most of my days were pretending that I was more successful and in control than I actually was, which is a pretty hard way to live a life, to be honest. Mm. And if you don't address that, if I didn't address that sooner, it gets worse. And that's exactly what happened. The, the stress became overwhelming, and I was lying, hiding, and faking every day of my life. Mm. And it wasn't until a very, very close friend of mine came to me and said, something is wrong. Something's off. I don't know what it is, but this is not. This is there's something going on here. And I came clean mm. and lifted a huge weight off my shoulders, and all of the energy that was going into lying, hiding, and faking could now be invested in finding a solution to re- rekindle my passion. Because I know I have passion, but it, go- it had gone. Mm. And the, the solution that I found was based on a confluence of events, was this magical little formula that I called the golden circle. And I called it the golden circle because I knew about the golden formula, which seemingly you know, right, right, right. Fly- applied everywhere. Well, this seemingly applied everywhere. Um, and I knew what I did, and I knew how I did it, but I didn't know why. And it restored my my passion to levels I'd never experienced. And I shared it with my friends, and my friends were doing, making crazy life decisions. It was helping them. And my friends asked me to talk to their friends. And I would stand in someone's living room and talk about this thing called the why and help people find their why for 100 bucks on the side. And it was never supposed to be a career. It was just a thing that I loved doing. And people just kept inviting me. Will you come talk to my company? Will you come talk? And I just kept saying yes. And then they offered to pay me to come and talk. And I was like, that means I can stop doing that and I can keep doing this. And then somebody said, you should write a book. And I went, oh, okay.
1: And uh, yeah, they gave me a book deal, and a little bit of pressure goes a long way. Is this notion of finding purpose of team sport then? Yeah,
2: I, I mean, I'll go, you'll hear me say this over and over again, you know, which is, we forget that being human is a paradox. Um, because every moment of every day, we are both individuals and members of groups. Teams, families, churches, communities, whatever. Every single day. And every single day, we are confronted with sometimes small, but sometimes big choices. Do I put myself first and at the sacrifice of the group, or do I put the group first right. at the sacrifice of myself? And the answer is yes. Right. You know? And some people believe, no, you have to take care of yourself because if you're not healthy, you can't help the group. And some people say, no, you have to help the. It, it, it depends, right. and, it's, and it causes stress. And this is the paradox of being human, which is we have to manage our individualism and our membership to groups. All the time. And we have responsibility to both. Um, And so when it comes to finding purpose, you can't do it alone. Um, One, because we're social, and our purpose is always an act of service. Not to ourselves, but to others. Purpose is always an act of service. The value of purpose is is to the benefit of others. And the benefit that we reap comes after we serve others, whether it's uh, our community, a cause, or another, another group of people. Parents say this. I never had purpose until I had a child. Right. Where now I have to prioritize the life of another human being before my own, right. and willingly and happily, even though it comes at great stress and great sacrifice, it's worth it. And all purpose, all cause, all why is always for the benefit of others. So yes, you, you, you would struggle to find purpose without, without a sense of member, membership to, to the greater human tribe.
1: You know, in other words, and I know this is a struggle, a question that many struggle with: what What is my purpose? Yeah, and I think you are giving people a bit of a roadmap as to it's in the services of others, and it's usually with others.
2: Yeah, um, you 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 won't you won't find it by yourself, and you can't do it by yourself. Yeah. and for many, that's humbling, right? Especially for those who are raised to think that they are all that and that you know, a bag of chips. Yeah. And I think any of us who've gone through the trials and tribulations of Hard, extreme hardship in life or extreme hardship in, in business, you very quickly learn that uh, it's others who, who lift you up and others who give you opportunity
1: and others who see something in you. It's it's never us. It's never us. There's a lot of young leaders in in you know here in the audience. And what um, what is going to be mandatory to lead in kind of the in in, in the next decade um, for these young leaders?
2: Uh, so the humbling humbling answer is the things that are mandatory for the next generation have, have been the mandatory things for every generation. They just haven't always been done and we've gone through a, a, a period of, of leadership a Desert for the past 30 40 years where there's been a decline of good leadership in in our country. I mean um, And so I think the there we need to double down on human skills. I detest the term soft skills like we talk about hard skills and soft, soft skills hard and soft are opposites you know we need hard skills, the skills you need to do your job, and we need human skills, the skills you need to be a better human, and if you have both of those, you will excel at work and in life, right mm-hmm. So human skills include things like how to have difficult conversations. We don't teach that; we probably should. Mm-hmm. you know I saw it after after the murder of George Floyd, the number of leaders um, who did nothing, not because they're bad people, they were just so afraid of having a difficult conversation with their team afraid that they would say something, say the wrong thing, inflame something, you know, trigger someone, that they opted for nothing. Um, all we have to do is teach people how to have difficult conversations. Mm. Um, and it turns out if you can have a difficult conversation about race, you can have a difficult conversation pretty much about anything. About anything. Um, we need to teach active listening. Um, most of us are pretty bad listeners. You know, mm. We hear words, um, we're thinking of what we should say in response, you know, we, we're waiting for our turn to speak. Mm. Um, I think we need to teach listening. It's a skill. I think we need to teach how to give and receive feedback. Mm. I think we need to teach how to have an effective confrontation. What happens if you disagree with your boss or you, or your colleague and you think they've screwed something up? How do you tell them? And a lot of people are just confrontation avoidant. You know, I, it's in, in, especially in the younger generation, I've seen it, which is I've seen people quit their job because they're just too uncomfortable to ask their boss for a raise, mm. which is just, you know, or or ghost somebody they're dating for six months because they're too uncomfortable to break up. It's just easier to ghost them, you Mm -hmm. know? Um, And the problem is, is it's not only destructive to the person you're doing it to, but ultimately you end up hurting yourself um, Mm. because you may leave a perfectly good job too soon because you're afraid to have a confrontation, to have a a difficult conversation.
1: Simon, um, I consider a huge privilege... Uh, to have you as a friend and be able to have these conversations, always I am you, grateful you. that you know our team got a, a glimpse into you know the the person that is an encyclopedia of wisdom and knowledge who has read one book. Uh, it is a remarkable, <laughs> maybe, uh, two. Uh, you know, uh, maybe two. Uh, I think
2: I think the one is a remarkable
1: I... paradox walking yeah. around. So yeah.
2: the, uh, the one book that I finished from cover to cover was the Da Vinci Code.
1: <laughs> no surprise. Anyway, on behalf of Red Ventures, thank you Thanks, very, very pleasure. much. It's a As I listened to my conversation with Simon, I couldn't help but think about the power of beliefs. Beliefs different than values or principles are things that we choose. So with that framework, here are three beliefs that could really help us all live a better life. Number one, optimism. The belief that the future will be okay. Hope is what drives humans to continue to persevere through difficult times. Why not believe the future will be bright? Number two is the belief that the quality of our relationships really have an impact on our ability to be courageous. What if we looked at our relationships as an investment for us to live a more courageous life? Number three, by believing that it is important to be focused on the service of others, We will ultimately find our life's purpose.
0: Rick shared his three things, but we want to know your takeaways as well. Find at Rick Elias on social media and let us know your thoughts on this conversation. And be sure to check out additional content, videos, and more at our blog, threethings.redventures.com. Thanks for listening.